So today for our message, for our sermon, we're still in the same series, Songs of the Bible, continuing on in that series, and we're still in the book of Psalms, and today we are going to be taking a look at Psalm 145, so you can already be flipping there in your Bibles, turn into Psalm 145 for when we read our way through the, the Psalm. I want to give a little bit of information about this Psalm, just sort of up front before we dig in and go through verse by verse. Uh, but this psalm, just sort of, if you want to look at what is this psalm all about, it is at the core a psalm, a song of praise. That's really what it's all about. It's all about, as we're going to see, and we'll dig in and we'll see this, uh, just sort of runs throughout. This is a psalm all about praising God, worshiping Him, right? Praising Him for His greatness, that He is just awesome and powerful. Praising Him for His goodness as well, that He is good, righteous, kind, loving, gracious, and it's just a celebration of God, who He is, praising Him, worshiping Him. Uh, that's what this psalm is really all about. Uh, a little bit more information about this psalm is that it happens to be an acrostic poem, an acrostic song. Uh, we've had a number of these in this series, not that all psalms are like this, but we've sort of had an unusual number of them in this series that we've been going through. And that just means that each successive verse of the psalm, that first word in the Hebrew that starts that, that verse, uh, for one line after another after another, they begin with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet from the, the first letter of the alphabet all the way to the last. And so that's what we see just sort of structurally, not that we'll see it in the English, of course, uh, but in the Hebrew you would see that as you look at it, and it forms part of the, the structure and outline of the psalm. But now let's, let's really dive right in. Let's look at Psalm 145, this uh, song of praise, this psalm of praise. And we'll start by taking a look at the heading. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. Uh, good translation, great one. I like the NIV as well, ESV. There, there are loads of good translations. And I particularly like this one for, for Psalm uh, 145. That said, I'm still going to nuance some of the translations nonetheless and sort of change it a little bit, and we'll see that as we get there. Uh, but so the, the heading here says, A Hymn of David. So this belongs to David. He has written it of David, it, it, meaning authorship, right? David is the one who authored this psalm, who wrote it. And, and the word here, hymn, not that hymn's a bad translation, uh, but I think oftentimes when we think of hymn today, we sort of think of certain styles, and it doesn't mean hymn in the sense of sort of a style. You know, often we think, well, hymns versus contemporary praise and worship music. That, that's not the sense of it, but rather, uh, really the best translation for the word that's used here is just song of praise. Uh, so it's a song of praise of David. David has written this song of praise. And now we get to the main body of the psalm, starting at the first verse, and here's what it says. I exalt you, my God, the King, and bless your name forever and ever. And certainly in this context, we'll see this word bless here. Uh, in this context, the way in which it's used, really bless it means praise effectively. To praise, right, and praise your name forever and ever. I exalt you, my God, the King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will bless or praise you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. And so really here, how does David begin this psalm? Really with this opening word of praise and worship. It is, as the heading says, a song of praise. And what does he do? Well, he opens by praising the Lord, bowing down before him, worshiping him, just singing his praises, right? I exalt you, my God, the King, and bless or praise your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. So sort of this opening word of praise and worship unto the Lord by David. But then as we move on, we're going to see this sort of develops a little bit more. In verse 3, here's what we see. The Lord is great 
and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable, right? What we're going to see is it's not just sort of generically language of, you know, let's praise and worship the Lord, but we're going to see that specifically there's really a praising of the greatness of God. Think of sort of his power, right? His greatness, that he is awesome, that he's Lord over all, king over all, and a celebration of that and a bowing down before God because of that praising his greatness, but also as we're going to see as we go through, there's also a praising of God's goodness, all of his attributes of goodness, that he is righteous and loving and, and gracious and kind and merciful and so forth. And so, yes, there's a praising and worshiping of God, but with particularly two things in view, his greatness and his goodness. And the appropriate response here as we understand the greatness of God and the goodness of God is to do what? Well, it's to bow down, worship him, and praise him. And so that's what's taking place here. We have the first two verses, sort of that opening word of praise, and now it talks about the greatness of God, right? The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable, right? Here in the sense of, you could sort of say, his greatness is unfathomable, right? We almost can't even comprehend the extent, the infinite extent of his greatness. That's what's being said there. And now verse four, here's where I'm gonna change the translation a little bit, and it's not just gonna be verse four, but it's verse four, verse five, verse six, verse seven, and verse 10 and 11. And you might say, well, why pick the CSB if you're going to go change that many, that, you know, that much of the translation? Well, really, pretty much all translations out there will translate these sort of with the future tense, right? So for ver verse 4 here, uh, one generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim. Or the next one, uh, you know, I will speak of your splendor. And it's just sort of the future tense. Uh, that's a possible translation. Uh, but it could also be better rendered. That's if we take this as sort of in the Hebrew. Not, I'm not, not that you know all about Hebrew, but it, it, that would be taking it as sort of the Hebrew in perfect tense. And the way you might translate that in this context would be to say, well, in English, sort of the future tense. Uh, it could also be often the forms are the same between the Hebrew and perfect and the justive, which the way we would translate that, and so in this case, it could be either. Looking at the form, it could be the imperfect, and so let's translate it future tense in English, but it could be the justive. And so in that sense, really the translation would be more along the lines of let one generation declare your works to the next and proclaim your mighty acts in verse 5 let me speak of your splendor right in verse 6 let them proclaim verse 7 let them give a testimony instead of just sort of the, the future tense it's not just saying sort of what will be the case right uh, one generation will declare your works to another. That's just sort of what will be the case. I would say it's probably not the best way to translate this verse and all of the others that sort of match this verse as well. But I'd say more it should be taken as we render it here in the English with this let, right? Let one generation declare your works to the next. Let me speak of your splendor. And in this sense, this Hebrew justive as it's called, uh, it sort of carries the meaning, there's sort of a range that can be anywhere from sort of a, a wish or desire uh, all the way up to sort of a command, even though it's in the third person, uh, sort of an indirect command in the third person. It can sort of have anywhere in that range. And I would say in this case, it really sort of carries both. It's sort of showing the wish and desire of the psalmist that, that one generation would declare your works to the next, 
But I'd say more than that, it's also showing forth here and carrying the weight of a command as well, sort of this indirect in the third person command, basically saying it's not just, hey, I wish one generation would declare your works to the next, but rather there is a command here from the psalmist. Really, it's a command from God himself, but that the psalmist here is sort of reaffirming that, hey, one generation is commanded to declare your works to the next. Uh, right, And so it carries that weight of command as well. I'd say it sort of carries both, both senses of both wish and desire, but also sort of this indirect command as well, that this is what must be done. This is what is expected, right? There's a command here, let one generation declare your works to the next and proclaim your mighty acts. So that's what he's saying. Certainly the desire of the psalmist, but also saying, right, we're called to do this. There's a command upon us that we are to do this, that one generation, knowing these great and awesome, right, talking about the, the greatness of God, knowing all of these mighty works that he has done, right, think of creation, or you could think of the story of Exodus, or just time and time again where God has done great and mighty and powerful things that show of his greatness, right, well, what are, are those who know of this, what are they to do? Well, that one generation ought to go and tell the next, so that this knowledge of God, right, that won't be forgotten, but one generation after the other, hearing of the greatness of God and all that he's done, right, they will be informed one generation after the other by the generation that proceeds. So each generation is to declare the works of God to the next and proclaim his mighty acts. Right, and so here, if we think about this, uh, and we're going to see this as we go further on in this psalm, there isn't just this praising and worshiping of the Lord. That's certainly present, right? And we see that right at the outset, verse 1, verse 2. We'll see it elsewhere where there's, there's this direct praising of the Lord and worshiping Him. But there's also this calling to declare, in a sense, to sing the praises of the Lord to those who don't know about the Lord, those who do not know of His greatness, those who do not uh, know of His goodness, as we're going to talk about as well. Well, to declare that to them. Right? If they don't know, well, the knowledge of the Lord, it should go to the very ends of the earth, that people all the way to the ends of the earth might bow down before the Lord and praise and worship Him. Right? That's what ultimately we're going to see is in sight in this psalm, is that people all over the place ought to know of God, know of His greatness, know of His goodness, and praise and worship Him as is only right and appropriate. And so part of that is not just that we acknowledge God's greatness and goodness and praise and worship Him, that's central and part of it, but also, well, we need to go and tell people who don't know so that then knowing they might go and praise and worship the Lord as well. So part of this, right, is one generation declaring the works, right, declaring your works, God's works, to the next and proclaiming, right, your, that is God's mighty acts. And then he goes on, verse 5, and again, I'm, I'm adding that let in here. I'm changing it a little bit. Verse 5, let me speak, and again, this isn't just my translation. You know, you might think, oh, boy, lots of translations just translated in the future, and oh, Pastor Steve thinks he's just going to go against every Bible translator who's ever lived. Uh, that's not the case. I don't think that I'm better at Hebrew than all of them. There are loads of commentators who will say the same thing, that th this is probably a better way to translate this as let one generation or let me. So it's not like I'm standing alone with this view. There are loads of, of really great Bible scholars who would say the same thing. So verse 5, let me. So it's not just the psalmist saying, oh, you know, let one generation, let them sort of do this and tell the next generation all about the Lord and his mighty acts, right, his works. But he says, let me, right, he's including himself in this. Let me, it's sort of a wish for himself and desire, but also sort of almost commanding himself, right, that, hey, I ought to do this as well. Let me speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. 
right? Yeah, even as one generation is to, to tell those, sort of the next generation, but in a sense you can sort of generalize it and say just generally people are to, to tell the whole world all about God and, and sort of, you know, his greatness, his goodness. Well, the psalmist isn't going to leave himself out in that and say, hey, let me do that as well. Let me speak, not just praising you directly, Lord, for your splendor and glorious majesty, but let me sort of shout it from the mountaintops, from the rooftops as well and tell the whole world, let me speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. And then verse 6, let them, them sort of going back here to verse 4, right, one generation declaring your works to the next, so generation after generation, them doing this, let them proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts. Sort of saying the same thing as verse 4, let one generation declare your works to the next and proclaim your mighty acts. Here it's still sort of talking about awe-inspiring acts, mighty acts, same thing. Let them proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts. And again, it's not just, hey, let them do this, that there's a burden on them to go and tell others all about your greatness, your power, your might, all that you've done. But hey, let me, right, the second part of verse 6, and let me declare your greatness. In verse 7, let them, again, talking about the one generation after the other, let them give a testimony of your great goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. So it's not now just that we're talking about sort of the greatness of God, sort of those attributes of greatness, but now we're going to talk about attributes of goodness. That God isn't just sort of uh, this great and awesome God, but boy, he's not good, he's bad. No, he's great, but also in addition to being great, he is a good God, right? He's righteous, he's good, he's loving. We're going to talk all about that in the coming verses that, that's addressed more fully, but here it's, right, let them give a testimony of your great goodness, right? This one generation telling the next, not only they're going to tell of the greatness of God, but let them also bear witness, give a testimony of God's great goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. And then it goes on, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. Again, these are attributes of his, part of his goodness, right? He's gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, right? He's great and faithful love. In verse 9, the Lord is good to everyone. And here, what's in view, probably everyone, I think if we say everyone, we probably are thinking people. And so I would say probably all is a better way to translate it because uh, clearly what's in view here is not just mankind. Uh, we're going to see as we read on that clearly he has all of creation in view. It says the Lord is good. Now the CSB says to everyone, but I'd say the Lord is good to all, all of creation in mind. And it's sort of clear in the rest of the verse, his compassion rests on all he has made. It's not just sort of mankind that's in view here, but, but it's sort of looking at all of creation, right? And saying, well, God is just good. He's good to all, to all of creation. His compassion rests on all that he has made. Verse 10, and now we get back to adding in the, the let here at the beginning of the verse, changing it a little bit. Let all you have made thank you, Lord. And here the word for thank, it can kind of mean thank, praise, and sort of the two merging together. It's sort of like this thankful praise uh, is the idea. But here's sort of what's in view. Well, hey, we're going to talk about how the Lord is gracious. Think of verse 8 and 9. The Lord's gracious. He's compassionate, slow to anger, and great and faithful love. The Lord is good to all, all of creation. His compassion rests on all he has made. So what is the appropriate response? This is sort of how the psalmist is thinking here. This is how David, he's the one writing it, how he's thinking. is sort of, well, then what's the appropriate response of all that he's made? If God is good to all, his compassion rests on all he's made, well, then let all that you have made thank or praise you, Lord. 
right? It's the only appropriate response. If you show your goodness to all of creation, right? Again, not just mankind, but sort of the whole of creation in mind. Think of the animals, everything. If you're just good to it all, what's the only appropriate response is, is of course, as he says, that all that God has made would thank him and praise him. And then he goes on the latter part of verse 10 here. Let the faithful bless you, or let the faithful, certainly it is blessed, but praise is sort of the sense there. Let the faithful praise you. So certainly all you have made ought to thank you, praise you, but how much more so in a sense is, is there a calling upon the faithful, right? Those who truly belong to him, who are truly his children, how much more so ought we to praise the Lord, to bless him? And then going on verse 11, here's the... the uh, last one here in this sort of section of, of the let's that I'm, that I'm adding on there. Uh, let them, and this is the faithful. You could look here and say, well, is them here all that God has made, or is it the faithful? It, clearly, it's the faithful here. So let them, that is the faithful that have just been mentioned in the second part of verse 10, let the faithful, let them speak of the glory of your kingdom and declare your might. And here, kingdom in the sense of really sort of God's sovereignty is sovereign rule and reign. Over, over everything, right? He is king over all. He's ruler over all. And so let them, the faithful, speak of the glory of, your, of God's sovereign rule and reign and declare his might, right? But there's this sort of a purpose in mind in this. Certainly, of course, we ought to just celebrate this and praise the Lord for his, his character. And he is king. He's sovereign, Lord, master over all. And we ought to praise him and worship him with that in view. But again, this sort of this proclamation of this truth to the world, to those who don't know. That's what's in mind here, right? So let them, let the faithful here, those who really know this, who understand this, all about God's goodness, his greatness, who know all about God's glorious sovereign rule and reign, right? Uh, let them, right, speak of the glory of your kingdom and declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts, right? So this is part of the intent in this, is that all people, people all over the face of the earth, might now know, might now know, of course, of, of your mighty acts, of God's greatness, and, and indeed, of course, of his goodness, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. Again, sort of thinking of what would people normally see when they think of sort of a king's sovereign rule and reign, right, over his, his kingdom, over his realm. Well, you know, that could last anywhere from a few days if you're ousted awfully quickly, maybe to 50 years. Maybe you could even manage to make it to 60, though that would have been quite rare. But, of course, that's not the case for the Lord. It's not that his rule and reign lasts for some, you know, little short finite span of time, but of course the Lord's rule and reign, your rule and reign, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom rule and reign. Your rule is for all generations. He is the eternal king over all that exists. He is Lord over all forever and ever and ever is what's being said there. And then it goes on, uh, the latter part of verse 13 here, the Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. Right, to put it simply, in a sense, it's like God is faithful, uh, gracious, he is, he is good in all that he says and all that he does, is basically what that's saying. And then verse 14, the Lord helps all who fall, he raises up all who are oppressed. And here it's sort of implied that we're sort of talking about the faithful of the Lord, those who sort of in their day of distress, right, the one who falls or who is oppressed here, right, that in that sort of 
time of trial that they cry out to the Lord, look to Him, lean upon Him, that they are truly His. They have a sincere heart for the Lord and for those people as they look to the Lord for help. Well, what does the Lord do? He helps them. He raises them up. He is there with them and sees them through uh, their time of trial. That's what's being said there. Again, just showing here His goodness, in this case, to His people. And then reading on, verse 15, all eyes look to you. And this is in the sense of, to say, everyone and everything is dependent upon you, Lord. And again, all here, not just in the sense of human beings, but, but all of creation. You can think of, you know, the squirrels, or, you know, they're out there gathering the nuts and sort of interesting note. I'm headed downstairs earlier today before the service, and I see a squirrel pop in the door and quickly zip out, and I'm thinking, good, he didn't hang out in here, but think of all of creation, even that, little squirrels that make their way into the church and then book it out. Um, you know, it's speaking of all of creation in the sense that all eyes, that little squirrel, you know, the birds chirping, you know, maybe as they're heading south and so forth, every living thing looks to the Lord, right, is dependent upon the Lord, and what does it say? And you give them their food at the proper time. Again, showing God's goodness, right? All of creation is dependent upon the Lord for everything, for air, for water, for food. And what does the Lord do? Well, He's good. And so, He gives them their food at the proper time. Verse 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Really saying the same thing as verse 15. It's not to say, ooh, if I have a desire for just like a nice big yacht and a billion dollars, well, it says he satisfies the desire of every living thing, and I'm a living thing with a desire, so God's going to satisfy that. Of course, here what's in view is sort of those basic needs that are sort of addressed in a sense in the prior verse, of, you know, talking about food, water, those needs, right? God is good. He opens his hand and satisfies those needs of every living thing and shows his goodness in that. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. Right, so again, we're sort of looking here at the goodness of God. He's righteous, he's faithful. And of course, what's in view is, well, if he's this wondrous, great God and also this good God, we ought to praise him and worship him. That's sort of what's at the root of this whole psalm. So I'm sort of talking again about his goodness. He's righteous, he's faithful. And also, the Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. It's sort of the idea here is someone in some sort of uh, distress, right, and sort of calling out to the Lord, crying out to the Lord for help. And again, this isn't just anyone, someone who's sort of in rebellion to the Lord, has no regard for God, and then just happens, for whatever reason, to cry out to the Lord, right? It says, right, all who call out to him with integrity, literally in truth, a good way to translate it is one who has a sincere heart for the Lord. We're talking about the Lord's faithful people, those who really belong to him. So those who are the Lord's people, who are faithful to him, when they are in their day of distress, Right? And they call out to him, and they call out to him with sincerity of heart for, for him. Well, it says that he is near to them. Certainly he's near to them in sort of a general relational sense, but, but really what's meant here is he is near to them so as to help them in their time of distress. He's not far off saying, hey, hope it goes well for you. Good luck with your problem. See ya. I'm not going to help. But rather he is near to them in the sense he's near to help, to, to see them through their time of distress and work it for good and, and bring blessing out of it for his people. That's what's being said there. 
And then reading on, verse 19, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. Right? These are, again, this is the language of his faithful people, those who fear him, who have a reverential fear of the Lord. What does he do for them? He fulfills their desires. Again, not to say our sinful desires, if we have sinful desires, but any desire that is good and right and appropriate and in accordance with God's will. Well, what does he do? He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. Again, showing his goodness, his kindness, his love. And then reading on, he hears their cry for help and saves them. Again, sort of like the prior verse, imagining the, sort of the scene of uh, one of God's faithful people in some sort of difficulty crying out to him. And again, it's not like the Lord's going to be far off and saying, you know, you're on your own for this one. But rather, of course, he is near to them. He hears their cry for help and saves them, sees them through that time, brings them through it, delivers them from it. And then going on, verse 20, the Lord guards all those who love him, right? For his people, he is a shield, a defense for them. He guards them, but he destroys all the wicked. And then verse 21, and here we get back to my little change here where we add in the word let, right? Instead of it just being sort of a simple, just render it as the future tense, my mouth will declare the Lord's praise. I would say this, this should be translated a little differently, and it should be let my mouth declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever, right? This is sort of the conclusion of all of this, right? He's talked about the greatness of God. He's talked about his goodness. He certainly opened with that word of praise and worship, but sort of then going on talking all about God and his mighty acts, his greatness, uh, his gloriousness, his goodness. Now, sort of what's the appropriate concluding word? Again, sort of this wish slash desire of the psalmist, but again, it's more than that. It's also, in a sense, uh, carrying the, the weight of a command and saying, well, you know, what must I do? What is the command upon me? What is the only right and appropriate response? Well, let my mouth declare the Lord's praise, right? If he is the great God, if he is good, what ought I to do? Well, nothing other than just to bow down before him, worship him, and praise him. So let my mouth declare the Lord's praise. But again, it's not just about him, right? Again, what he's had in his mind this whole time is not just, you know, hey, I should be praising and worshiping the Lord. But, but the idea is he desires, and this is what is right and appropriate, for the knowledge of the Lord to go forth to the very ends of the earth, to all of the nations. Even you think of sort of David's day here, you know, that the age, the day and age of David, and you sort of have this little faithful Israel here, you know, when they were faithful, which was only some of the time in all reality. And then you just sort of have all these pagan nations that worshiped all of their false gods all around. And what, what David here desires here is not just for him to praise and worship the Lord, not just for, well, the people of Israel to praise and worship the Lord, but he's even thinking, no, I want the knowledge of the Lord to go forth throughout all of those pagan nations to the very ends of the earth, and then them, now knowing all about God, knowing about his greatness, knowing about his goodness, then what they ought to do is this, right? They ought to, as he closes here, let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. And really here, he's even extending it beyond mankind to say, let all flesh, that's literally how it's translated, right? Uh, how it's rendered in the Hebrew. But basically every living thing, you know, not even just people, but it's as if all of creation should be participating in this. That all of creation ought to what? Ought to bless his holy name, ought to be praising and worshiping the Lord forever and ever. And so that's really big picture what's going on here. Again, 
we have David here praising and worshiping the Lord, but saying, hey, it's not enough if I'm the only one doing it. In fact, it's not even enough just for, for God's faithful people, but there's a whole world out there filled with people who don't know about the Lord. They don't know about his greatness, his mighty works. They don't know about his goodness and his love, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that he's all these wondrous things, right? They don't know that, and so what should we do as God's people who know all about that? Well, yes, we need to praise and worship him first and foremost. But then we need to do more than that. We need to go and tell people. They don't know the knowledge of the Lord hasn't extended to everywhere and everyone. And so we need to declare to people all about his greatness, all about his goodness, hoping that then they will understand that, and not just intellectually, but it will sort of sink into their hearts, right, that they will give their lives to the Lord, and that then they will down, bow, bow down before the Lord, and that they will then worship him and praise him. And so then there will be a knowledge of the Lord that extends all over the face of the earth, that all people will know him, and that all will then be bowing down before him and praising him and worshiping him as is only right and appropriate, right? That's David's view here. That's his desire. That is what ought to take place. If God is this great and awesome God, Lord over all and good, then all people, indeed all creation, ought to be acknowledging him bowing before him, worshiping him, and praising him. And that's what this is about. And so then I want to say, well, okay, so, so, so what? What's sort of our, our takeaway here? What's our application? You know, where do we go from here? You know, what impact does this have on how we're going to go and live our lives? And I'd say, you know, first and foremost, and probably pretty obviously, is, well, praise and worship the Lord. If this is a, even as the heading says, if it's a song of praise, and if you even look at the content, well, what's it about? It's all about praising the Lord, worshiping Him, uh, praising His goodness, His greatness. Well, then what ought we to do as the Lord's people? Well, for starters, let's praise and worship Him. Let's worship Him. Let's sing His praises. Praise Him for His, his greatness. Praise Him for His goodness. Uh, it's what we ought to do. And so I'd say, yeah, application point one, that's, that's, that's the first point, is we need to worship God and praise Him for His goodness and greatness. But I want to talk a little bit more about that. And I think often when we think of praise and worship, we think of sort of this outward act, which it is in part. But in a sense, that outward act, it really starts in the heart. It, it fundamentally, uh, if we think of praise and worship, it really starts as a heart attitude and disposition uh, toward the Lord. Uh, and, and it ought to be this heart attitude, sort of a perpetual disposition of the heart of, of sort of bowing down before the Lord in our heart of hearts and, and just delighting in Him and His qualities and just sort of in our heart of hearts always just sort of praising the Lord. And then with that being what's in our hearts, this sort of perpetual bowing before the Lord and, and, and delighting in Him and praising Him, uh, that will then make itself manifest. If that's what's in our hearts, that's then what we're going to live out. And so we're going to live that out, sort of that heart disposition of praise and worship unto God, we will then live out faithfully with outward acts of praise and worship of the Lord as he rightfully deserves. And so if we're going to talk about, well, hey, we need to worship God, we need to praise him for his greatness, for his goodness, well, then I'd say, well, but it starts with the heart. And I'm sure that we do delight in the Lord and we praise and we worship him, but we can always say, well, you know, I need to be even more captivated by who God is and, and the extent, the, the unfathomable extent of his greatness and his goodness, and I just need to, to surrender myself even more to him, bow down all the more fully and sing his praises all the more. There's always room for growth. And so really, if we're thinking of first application point of let's worship and praise the Lord, really where it starts is coming before the Holy Spirit and saying, Holy Spirit, change my heart bit by bit. 
cultivate more and more and more with every passing day within my heart that disposition of, of just sort of worship, bowing before you in my heart of hearts and just praising you in my heart of hearts, and that that would then overflow with the outward acts of praise and worship that you delight in, Lord. And so that, in a sense, is really, if we're going to talk about praising and worshiping the Lord, that's really where it starts. That's really our fundamental first application point, is say, Holy Spirit, change my heart more and more, uh, mold it more and more into what it ought to be, a heart that is uh, disposed to you in a way of worship and, and praise that just, I just delight in you, Lord, and in my heart of hearts, there's just a bowing before you and a singing of your praises that that might overflow with outward acts of praise and worship. So that's the first point. But the second point, if we look at this psalm, again, it's not just about David as the psalmist here uh, talking about, hey, I need to praise and worship the Lord. I'm going to do that, or the faithful are going to do that. That's present. That's certainly a part of it. But there's also this recognition of everybody's got to do it. The whole world, the whole of creation has to participate in this too. He's God overall, and so everything ought to be bowing before him and praising and worshiping him. And so what does that mean, my role, and that is, well, if there are people out there who don't know about the Lord, who don't know about his greatness, his mighty and wondrous acts and works, who don't know all about his goodness, that he's loving and, and gracious and merciful, that he is kind, right? If they don't know that, well, then what do I have to do? I've got to go and tell them. I have to sort of sing the praises of the Lord to the world so that they might know, and ultimately hoping that they will then receive that truth and acknowledge the Lord, and then bow before Him, and then they would be worshiping Him, that they might, understanding, having this knowledge imparted to them, and having it sink into the hearts, that then they might participate in this sort of, in a sense, global, with all of creation participating, that they might participate in this worship and praise of the Lord, right? That is the desire of the psalmist. And so for us, our application is to say, well, we need to praise and worship the Lord, but we need to do more than just that. We need to tell the whole world all about God, all about His goodness, all about his greatness, sing the praises of the Lord everywhere we go and impart that knowledge of the Lord to those who do not know it. Again, under the, the, with the hope that then they will receive the Lord and they themselves also will praise and worship the Lord. And so that's really our second application point. First one, yeah, we need to do it and praise and worship the Lord. But second application point is to say we need to do uh, more than just that. We need to impart this knowledge of the Lord to others, to those who don't know, so that they might join in worshiping God and praising Him. And so that's really our challenge, and I'd love to see us fill that out. I think we, we as a church have a heart for the Lord. We delight in worshiping Him. Uh, we delight in praising Him. I think we delight in sharing the message of the gospel. I think at times we struggle with how do we do that and practically how do we live that out, but I think there's this heart's desire to really share the knowledge of the Lord with the world, with people who don't know, so that they might come to know Him and praise and worship Him. So let's hear the application. Let's faithfully do it for the Lord that all might bow before him, worship him, and praise him for his glory. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, you are an amazing God. As this Psalm of David talks about, you are great. Your greatness is unsearchable, as it says in this Psalm unfathomable, incomprehensible, infinite. Lord, and your goodness is just as wondrous and glorious and infinite. And the only appropriate response is we're gripped by your greatness, by your goodness, recognizing you are God over all, Lord over all, that your sovereignty is limitless, without bound, Lord, 
And not only that, but that you're good as God and Lord and Master over all. Lord, our only appropriate response is just to bow before you, worship you, and sing your praises. And may we do that. May we have a heart's desire to do so. Holy Spirit, may you work and cultivate that heart disposition more and more with every passing day so that we might overflow all the more with outward acts of praise and worship that honor and glorify you, Lord. But may we also hear the heart of David here as well, and he desires to see the knowledge of God go forth to the ends of the earth, Lord. And there are still loads and loads of people out there who don't know you, don't know of your greatness, don't know of your goodness, and they need to know. And may we faithfully impart that knowledge to them, Lord. You're the one who will ultimately change hearts, but may we still declare all about you and your greatness and goodness, hoping that you will change hearts cause them to bow before you and worship and praise, and then may all of creation participate in this praise and worship of you, Lord, as you so rightfully deserve. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.